We have been working our way through the book of Daniel, and as we move past chapter 6 into chapter 7, we're entering some turbulent waters. Up until this point in this book, Daniel has been cool, calm, copacetic, collected, nothing, nothing rattles Daniel. Not the deportation, not political intrigue, not an assassination plot where they wanted to put a contract on his life, not peer pressure, not the lion's den, nothing rattles Daniel until now. Now for the first time in the book, Daniel is deeply upset. Chapter, the chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 15 says, My spirit was distressed. My mind kept alarming me. The chapter ends in verse 28. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Why is he so upset? I mean, he's experienced it all. This chapter is prophecy, and prophecy unveils the future but you know chapter 2 unveiled the future what's so unique about chapter 7 that gets so Daniel so upset and should we be upset along with him well Daniel 7 is a wild ride so put on your seatbelts there are animals in chapter 7 but it's less like Warner Park and more like Jurassic Park until now other visions and dreams were revealed to Nebuchadnezzar or to Belshazzar and interpreted by Daniel. But Daniel's chapters 7 and 8 both contain prophecies that were revealed to Daniel. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, and then we see unveiled what he beheld. So, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip, and uh, after a huge meal, they laid down at night, fell asleep, and uh, hours later, in the middle of the night, Holmes nudged Watson and uh, said to his faithful friend, Watson, look up and tell me what you see. Watson said, I see the sky full of stars. Holmes said, what does that tell you, Watson? Watson thought about it. And he said, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies, potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Chronologically, I deduce that time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I see that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I sense that it's going to be a pleasant day tomorrow. Holmes, what does it tell you? And Holmes said, Watson, someone has stolen our tent. Well, when you're reading and studying Daniel 7, it's possible to look into the stratosphere, identify as many interpretive details as you can harvest, but miss the main point of what's right in front of us. 
The point God is making to Daniel and, and that Daniel is making to us is this. God is in control. He settles accounts, not on our, time, our timetable, but on his timetable. But the scale of God's plan is so overwhelming and at times frightening. And the truth is, believers will be caught up into it. And there will be what we might call collateral damage. But every circumstance about every person is known by God. And when I, I got to tell you, when I look at the shrillness of our political rhetoric these days in our country that just seems to grow worse every day, I think a passage like Daniel 7 is very timely. Uh, sometimes, and the reason I say that is this, sometimes it's good to just look at the big picture and say, God is in control. He is the one, the ancient of days, who is on his throne. Relax. His purposes will not be thwarted. So before we dive into this chapter, I want to make some observations tying this chapter to its bookend. This chapter is the conclusion of a section in the book of, of, in the book of Daniel that begins in chapter 2. Chapters 2 and 7 are bookends. So I'm going to talk about that for just a moment. I put a few notes in your bulletin about this. First of all, I want to say something about the language of the bookends. When Lewis taught on chapter 2, he said that chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Aramaic is a different language from Hebrew. It uses the same letters, but it's a different language. It's, it was the international language of politics and diplomacy and, and commerce during Daniel's day. Any Jew reading through Daniel 1 would be just fine until he hit chapter uh, 2, verse 4. And that's when he would hit Aramaic. It would be a language barrier. And that extends through the end of chapter 7, where we are today. That's the whole section. So beginning with chapter 2, we're reading, actually, actually, God's plan for his history for all people, not just for the Jews. And you could argue that it was intended for non-Jews. The language of the bookends is the first point I want to make. Secondly, the nature of the bookends. Uh, when you look at the bookends of this Aramaic section, yes, they're Aramaic, but it's more than just that. If you walked into a furniture store and said, I'd like to buy some bookends, please, and they took you to uh, uh, and showed you, here's a white porcelain angel, goes on the left side, and here's a replica of the Heisman Trophy, it goes on the right side. These are bookends together. You, know, you look at the, I'm sorry, they do not match. Those don't match at all. Uh, even if they try to convince you that they match. Well, chapters 2 and 7 are bookends, and they are different, but they do match. They are symmetrical to each other. Both prophesy about four kingdoms. In both vision, the second kingdom contains elements of a duality, two arms of silver, two uneven sides. Both focus on the fourth kingdom. In both visions, there's a four plus one prophecy, four kingdoms and a final kingdom. In both visions, the fourth kingdom has the same metallic iron substance. In both, there's a tenfold plurality. In chapter 2, ten toes. In chapter 7, ten horns. They're not identical. They are not identical, but they are symmetrical. Now, let me say something about the timing of the two bookends because this helps us understand the second uh, picture of the four kingdoms uh, in chapter 7. 
Chapter 7 and chapter 2 are roughly 50 years apart. Half a century has passed since Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. I believe, and I'm going to give you a lot of speculation today, but I believe that his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are, are, are probably long dead and gone. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead about 10 years, and all of his successors have been weak men. Now his successor, I believe his grandson, is Belshazzar. And God's pen is being sharpened to write on a wall, which will take place in very few years. Now, the differences between the bookends, however, are also significant. Daniel 7 does have those differences. In chapter 2, there's this beautiful statue. Or, you know, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, it's a masterpiece of art from man's perspective. But chapter 7 reveals the same subject from God's perspective especially through the x-ray lens of sin. Here, the kingdoms of men are viewed in their rebellion against God, and they're exposed as wild, carnivorous, horrific, mutated predators. Another difference is in chapter 2, the stone, there's a stone that conquers and receives the kingdom. But here, we're given more information about that being. And the book of Revelation gives even more information about that being. In New Testament terms, if there is a Christ, there is also anti-Christ. Chapter 7 introduces just the, the shadows of that idea for us. And then a final observation I want to make is that Daniel 7 is like an epic horror movie. Everything in this chapter is entirely visual. Notice the verbs of a spectator. Daniel saw, verse 1. He was looking, verse 2. He was contemplating, verse 8. I kept looking, verses 6, 7, 9, uh, 4, 6, 7, 9, 11, twice there, and 13 and 21. You get the picture. God, God has hit the play button. And Daniel is experiencing this multimedia presentation. But I also want you to notice something else. Verse 1 tells us what we are about to read is a summary a summary. These are not all the details that Daniel saw. I could say on 9-11, two planes crashed into twin towers. Both towers collapsed. Many people died. That is a summary. But we lived through the horror, many, most of us, of many details of that and the aftermath of that. This is a summary. It's not all that Daniel saw. It's the Cliff Notes version of his vision. So just to go back to my earlier analogy, I mentioned it's like an epic movie. Let me put it even more in a more focused way. It's the movie trailer. <laughs> it's, it's enough to tantalize and to make you aware that there's just a lot more to come. Now, as the chapter unfolds, verses 1 through 14, and I've got an outline in your notes if you're interested in that, verses 1 through 14 record the dream, and verses 15 through 28 give God's interpretation of the dream. Let's take a look at verse 3. We'll start with verse 2 again. I didn't finish that. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. 
And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Okay, then there's a fourth beast, which we'll get to in a second. Four beasts come out of the sea representing four kingdoms. Verse 17 tells us that they represent four kingdoms, four kings. It's, it's common for nations to be represented by animals, right? The United States, the eagle, uh, Soviet Russia used to be represented by the bear. We understand that. But these are not animals that you would see in a zoo. They're composite creatures. The first three are capable of description. Daniel understands mostly about them, and he doesn't ask about them. He doesn't ask for clarification about them. The first beast is the best of the bunch. In Daniel 2, the first empire was the Babylonian Empire, and here the first beast is also the Babylonian Empire, and I think it describes King Nebuchadnezzar pretty well. He was more beastly at the beginning than he was at his end. Apparently, in the image here, he was airborne, that he was soaring under his own his own pride, we would say, but God plucked his feathers so that he could no longer soar. This fits well with the story of pride that we see in chapter 4 when the king grazed with the animals. But as, with the, last, as the last part of verse 4 says, he was given his mind. He became more human, more the image bearer that God wanted him to be at the end of his life. Fits pretty well with uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I'm, I'm going to uh, pause after making these remarks and just, just make some comments about how I'm approaching this chapter. When we're studying biblical prophecy, it is future to the human author here, Daniel. But for us, some may have already been fulfilled in history and some may be fulfilled in what we might call future history. Um, the example here, I think, would be the four beasts that are described are mostly, mostly future to Daniel, but they're mostly history to us. So we can identify some details and see how some of those things might well fit. Uh, Daniel, for example, would have known about the Medo-Persian Empire. He, he, it was right outside the door. He would have known about the Greeks and how their power was increasing, but they were not necessarily on the international uh, saint at that time, but Rome? No, that would not have been on Daniel's radar at all. Now, we look back on those things, and we say, okay, we see how those details fit. But sometimes we, we wonder, okay, why does Daniel, in his summary, emphasize this detail as opposed to that detail? But remember two things. Daniel, number one, is giving a summary, not everything he saw. And secondly, we haven't seen it and he did and they were horrible 
in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's view of the kingdoms of men was they were just fine. But here we see God's view of man's kingdoms, and they're not just fine. Okay. Um, I, would, I would say that all four of the beasts in this chapter are identifiable in history. Uh, but there was more to the fourth beast that was not fulfilled in any way that I can see. I think it's yet future history to us. And all those details are connected with the end of days. And the imagery that's in Daniel 7 is picked up again in Revelation 13 and 17. That's for another study at another time. So I, I, I fully admit that we see through a glass darkly. <laughs> uh, I, I get that. But there are some dots I'm going to suggest to you could be connected. Uh, I'm not comparing the fourth kingdom with today's newspapers and searching for details that align with North Korea and China and, and Russia and all that, that sort of thing. I used to have a professor that would say that there are some sensationalistic interpreters of prophecy that could tell you what's between the ten toes of the image in Daniel 2. But I will be doing some speculating. And I will let you know that. So back into chapter 7, the second beast in verse 5 is bear-like. And it appears suddenly, maybe a reference to the sudden judgment that was about to befall Belshazzar in chapter 5. This beast would be just a few years future to Daniel, the Medo-Persian Empire. It was raised up on one side. And maybe, maybe that is because Medo-Persia was a lopsided alliance. Um, but what is the meaning of the self-devouring ribs? Some suggest that the ribs refer to the three great conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus. Lydia in Asia Minor, Babylon, which we are looking at now, and Egypt uh, a little bit later on. That's possible. It's possible. Uh, I do know that the Medo-Persian alliance was predatory and known to be very vicious in history. The third beast is in verse 6. And if you follow world history, this would be Greece, the leopard. If the bear was fast, the leopard's twice as fast. Alexander the Great, or if you prefer, Alexander the Pretty Good, was lightning fast in his conquests. The leopard here has four wings and four heads. It's like it cloned itself but didn't get it quite right. Uh, these traits, again... They do fit with the four divisions of the Hellenistic Empire right after the death of Alexander. Uh, Babylon and North Syria under Antigonus, Egypt under Ptolemy, Macedonia under Cassander, Thrace and Bithynia under Lysimachus. These descriptions, these correspondences actually fit well. Nothing is stretched out of shape here for that. But now we come to the fourth beast. Look at verses 7 and 8. After this, I kept on looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So the eyes and a mouth are like those of a man. 
So if we continue down the tracks of world history, if we do, then this would fit with the Roman Empire and the clones and mutations flowing from the Roman Empire. It get, this beast gets more attention than all the others combined. It's described here. And later on, Daniel asks for more information about it. Verse, but verse 7 specifically says it was different from all the beasts that were before it. The first three beasts are described in similes like this, like that. They had analogs that made sense to Daniel. The fourth is like nothing we've ever seen before. The first three are described as dependent upon God for their authority. This last beast is, becomes anti-God later in the chapter. The first three are destroyed. The fourth one is a destroying machine, and it will not be destroyed until verse 26. It has large iron teeth that devour everything in sight, maybe ruthless expansionism. Ten horns in the, in the Bible, uh, the, the Old Testament, a horn is a symbol of power used to describe powerful rulers, but that's not all. There's this one hellish horn that emerges and displaces the others by the roots, kind of like the creature in the, in the movie Alien that horribly kills the host that gestates him. You, you can just hear the screams as this one horn, this horror of horrors emerges, dominant, pulls the others out. Now, we read these verses. Daniel saw this and recoiled in horror. In my opinion, this, while this beast has its roots in history, along with the other empires, I believe the roots extend beyond the Roman Empire. I believe that it will outgrow and consume and eat its host. The imagery here and later on is just God's picture of sin in its most naked form. It's utter, overt, naked, vicious rebellion against God. And I, and I think this may be what alarmed Daniel more than anything else. Daniel already knows God wins. He knows that. But here Daniel's given this pictorial revelation of graphic sin unplugged, unleashed on the earth. I have a question for you. How do you, how do you view sin in your life? Even as redeemed image bearers of God, I don't think that we still see sin the way that God sees it. Um, I don't think we can. We don't believe sin is as sinful as it is, and we don't believe God is as holy as he is. The only human things about this horse beast are his eyes and his mouth. And he uses his eyes to glare in defiance. He uses his mouth to blaspheme God. This beast reminds me of another creature who, like a roaring lion, uses his eyes to seek whom he may devour with his mouth. Your adversary, the devil. Now, for now, and I have a reason for doing this, I'm going to skip over to verse 15. So if you're following along with me, I'm going to skip verses 9 to 14. And, and, and I will say that verse 14 could easily have closed the chapter. But Daniel has asked for more, and God gave him more. And he gave it in two, install, two installments. There's a wide-angle lens and a zoom lens. In verse 15... Daniel's alarmed by what he does understand, but he's especially alarmed by what he doesn't understand. So in verse 16, he approaches this angelic being and asks for more information. And here's the wide-angle report in verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. 
But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So that's it. God wins. Neither the kings nor the kingdoms of the earth will last. That's it. Yeah. Um, Time is compressed here. God uh, fast forwards. I mean, Daniel is still upset, and he asks for more, not about the first three beasts, but about the fourth one, Uh, the only one that in its full outworking is, I believe, yet future to you and me. So the zoom lens, look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. You know, and you and I read along and we say, Daniel, why do you want to go there? The fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Well, here time is compressed, and I believe God fast-forwards Daniel to the time when God closes all accounts. In, in New Testament terms, I would suggest that we're looking at the second coming of Christ in the next verses, because the picture zooms in for more details, and if it had been a digital picture on the phone, you know how you take the picture on the phone, and you take your fingers and make it bigger? That's what happens. That's what happens right here. Look at verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alteration in times and in law, and then they will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Okay, clear? You got it? Well, many books have been written about the exact meaning of this beast and this fourth beast and what he does. And, and some of the speculations are, frankly, pretty ridiculous. Um, at the other end of the interpretive spectrum are friends who tend to spiritualize all details so that they have no significance or at least say we can't even think about that. Um, one scholar wrote, for example, the details do not have a one-to-one equivalent. How do you know that? The first three did. <laughs> But the details here do not have a one to so because we don't know what's going to happen in the future and what this what this will look like. Uh, this beast is described, and everybody seems to agree with this. This beast is described in more detail in Revelation 13 and 17. So you can look there, and there are some interpretive assumptions and disagreements between those who who are are, are studying these details. And the truth is, I have my opinions on these things. But we're looking at what has we're looking at what has not unfolded yet. So, I think we need to be uh, cautious, and uh, uh, yet at the same time honor the text for what it says. Um, I've told you many times that uh, my best theology that I've ever done or had uh, published uh, is nothing more than God's refrigerator art. 
That's it. In our scripture reading, Peter said that the prophets themselves were uncertain about the timing. Okay. For now, we're in Daniel 7 in this fourth kingdom, being, and, and everybody seems to agree that this refers to the Roman Empire and then what flows out from the Roman Empire. So I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you Gary's speculations about what has not happened yet. This is what it might look like in the future. Uh, there will be ten kings some form of a ten-power alliance that will arise from the ruins of the Roman Empire, Europe, and will become dominant in the world. And it seems like these are ten, are not ten successive kings, but ten contemporaneous kings. That has never happened in the old Roman Empire. And because it's never happened in the old Roman Empire, somebody might say, well, how could it happen in the future? Well, with globalization, easily. Um, it's already happened in the European Union, if you think about it. A trade coalition with a common currency, an economic alliance, a military alliance, cyber business alliances. I'm just throwing out ideas here. Maybe a multinational corporation dominating the world by marketing a new source of energy. Um, maybe some form of collective protection against a growing vulnerability to blackmail from cyber terrorism or common access to a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's. Something will give leverage and enormous power to this group. Now, I happen to hold a view that Jesus will return first to rapture the church before that. It may be that nothing needs to take place before Jesus returns for his bride. Whether I'm right about that or not, one thing is clear. Uh, during the tribulation, if you read Revelation 4 through 19, if you read that, Israel is in her land and is persecuted and the surrounding nations are aligned against her. Well, that could never happen in future history, right? Well, in verse 25, one ruler emerges as dominant over the others. And he, we're told three things about him. He will blaspheme God. He will persecute God's saints. And he will try to orient everything in the culture to himself. And Revelation describes that same kind of thing as some form of self-deification. And this is connected with altering times and the law of God. About times, I'm clueless. About the law of God, that's already happening. With the devaluation of the family and no-fault divorce, gay marriage, devaluation of life in abortion, doctor-assisted suicide, full-scale euthanasia just waiting outside in the foyer. We have bypassed laws that protect the family, the sanctity of life, protect the most vulnerable among us, Many of our laws, I would say, are anti-Christ, or will be. Thinking ahead to this same beast in the book of Revelation, the idea of the mark of the beast, without which people cannot buy and sell, used to be really, really far-fetched. <laughs> but now in our digital age, not so much anymore. So, the, the, you know, and how long will this take? How long will this this reign of terror 
last? Well, it will include, as, Rebel, as Daniel 7 says, time, times, and half a time. Interesting, the same phrase occurs in the book of Revelation about this, about this beast, and refers to time, times, and half a time. Same term. And then the same time frame is referred to a few verses later as 42 months. And then a few verses in another passage, same time referred to as uh, uh, 1,250 days, uh, which is three and a half years, folks. The, what, the half of the tribulation that's described as the great tribulation period. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, am I in church? Um, who is this man and where's Gary? For some of you, this is new to you. You have been here for years. You've never heard me address any of this because it wasn't in the text that we were preaching. Um, and I have also done some speculating and I have identified what I consider to be possibilities. What I want you to do is to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 and study these things for yourself. Truth does not become truth because your preacher holds to it. Because it's the truth of the Word of God. So, uh, now, but the thing is, none of this looks nearly as far-fetched as it did when I was a boy. In verse 26, the dominion of this being, this beast, which he thought, you know, nobody can touch me, is destroyed, annihilated forever. Let me read two verses to you. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance by his coming. In Revelation 20, and the beast was seized, Revelation 19 and 20, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who were receiving the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And skipping ahead a little bit, um, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are also. In verses 27 and 28, the court is in session. The beast is hauled off into punishment. The books are closed. And the one who rules is the Son of Man. That's where I stopped earlier. Skip back to verse 9. This takes us back to our main point. We followed the beast down a monster-sized rabbit trail filled with details that we don't fully understand, but in heaven we'll look back and say, ah, okay, I get that now. Just as now we understand more about the first three beasts, but not everything. But what's crystal clear in Daniel 7 is the contrast that we're about to see. In verse 9, here's a part that we did not examine, yet it ties everything together. This is the only thing that gives us hope. Look at verse 9. I kept looking until the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow 
and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. The books were open. With the four beasts, there's chaos, there's unrestrained chaos on the earth, but in heaven, there is utter calm, absolute order, sovereign power. The judge has entered his chambers. The divine court is in order. Relax. Be still. And by the way, there's one more special effect of this film that I want you to see because it's important. You don't want to miss this. I'm going to describe it this way. Every movie has a soundtrack, you know. All right. What we have seen so far with the four beasts and what's happening in the future with that fourth beast, what we have imagined that the soundtrack for that in that film has been nothing but clanging cymbals and drums, just nothing but noise. But now, for the first time, here... As you look at verses 9 and 10, and then as you look at verses 13 and 14, those are the four verses where there's the most glorious music that you have ever heard accompanying this vision. And I, I'm communicating it this way because the, the sensory contrast between these images couldn't be any sharper. Have you noticed in your Bibles, some of you in your Bibles, that verses 9 and 10, describing the ancient of days, and verses 13 and 14, describing the Son of Man, are marked off in poetry. Have you noticed that? That's a sensory change. You're to look at that and say, oh, wait a minute. It's, it's like the words that we're describing, all those other beasts aren't worth the letters that were used to compose them, the descriptions. But here, the description of God in his heaven is in Hebrew poetry. It's, it's like the word has come together to produce the most amazing self-description, the most beautifully crafted words describing the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. That is a difference in the text, reading it in the Hebrew, or the Aramaic, rather. In verses 11 and 12, the omnipotent, sovereign Lord briefly turns his head towards the fourth beast, this horn with the mouth and the eye is glaring and blathering away in boastful pride, and the Ancient of Days goes... That's that. And then in verses, in, in the scene turns to the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given authority, dominion. What did Jesus say? All what has been given to me? All authority has been given to me. A glory and a kingdom. What did the disciples say to Jesus after the resurrection, Lord, is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So it's a glorious kingdom. It's a universal kingdom. All peoples, every language might serve him. And it's an eternal kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which, in contrast to all the kingdoms of men, 
which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man. The term Son of Man is used often in the Old Testament as a synonym for a human being. But it also is used to describe the coming Messiah, the being who embodies everything that mankind was intended to be but failed to become. When Jesus came, do you know what his most common name for himself was? What was it? Son of Man. 87 times in the New Testament. Here's the thing. Everything that we have seen, that we have experienced in this chapter, that Daniel saw, we're just getting the summary, has been orchestrated by God. He's the director of this film. He is the producer. He is the star. And if you roll the credits at the end of it, everything says God. Hairs on your head, numbered by God. Food provided by God on the dirt provided by God. Uh, air to breathe, supplied by God. Eyes with which to see, donated by God. Minds with which to think, provided by God. It's all about Him. And, and the beast in this movie is anti-God, anti-Christ. God became perfect man, the Son of Man, to take the horrors of sin upon Himself. But there is this default setting in the universe. Those who do not choose God's side, by default, choose the beast. That's the way it is. That's the way that God sees it. So the question is, whose side are you on? Did you know that there was an ongoing dispute that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders about Daniel's son of man? Did you know that? Jesus called himself the Son of Man so many times. Uh, let me just reference a couple or a few. Matthew 9, to the Jewish leaders, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. The Son of Man has the divine prerogative to forgive sins. He tells the Jewish leaders, so that you may know the Son of Man has this authority. And, and later in Matthew 12, Jesus said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, you know, the Sabbath, it's God's Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath. Oh, it's mine. My Sabbath. It's all about Him. In Matthew 12, the Son of Man is greater than all the prophets. In Matthew 16, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father and His angels and will recompense to every man according to His deeds. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man has divine glory. Divine glory. I've got divine glory. And by the way, the angels, they're mine. His angels. They're my angels. And oh, and, and the future judgment, it's mine. The judgment that was only God's. In Matthew 20, he says the Son of Man will be delivered and will die and will be raised from the dead. In Matthew 24, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That's a reference to the second coming. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And at Jesus' trial, get this, at Jesus' trial, Matthew 26, Jesus kept silent. 
And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether or not you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, listen, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7, 13. He quotes it. And the high priest tore his robes. He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard his blasphemy. Jesus' quotation of Daniel 7 sent him to the cross. That's the chapter we're looking at. God settles accounts, but it's on his timetable. And he knows what he's doing in history. And he knows what he's doing in your story. So whose side are you on? One more passage about the Son of Man. Jesus came into Caesarea Philippi. He began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then they gave different answers of the day. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Whose side are you on? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one comes to the Ancient of Days except by the Son of Man. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word, for my brothers and sisters and their patience in this long study this morning. But Lord, we, we look forward to the time when our faith becomes sight and we look in um, the face of our Savior with rejoicing. Until then, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to you. I pray that we would be patient until you're coming. And I pray, Lord, that we would rest in the truth that the Ancient of Days is on his throne. We are to be still and know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.